so much. Would you join me this morning in the book of Habakkuk chapter 2? Habakkuk chapter 2, and I want to read the first four verses. Verse 1 through 4, Habakkuk chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord, Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he, God, will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. The Lord answered and replied to Habakkuk, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it lingers, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never is at rest. Word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. In his state of wandering and worrying, Habakkuk is wrestling with what we later would come to describe as theodicy. The world and humanity, philosophers and theologians, have all been wrestling with this issue of how evil in the world coexists with humanity since the killing of Cain over Abel. The perplexity of how a loving, gracious, merciful, providing God could permit evil to often triumphant over good is disturbing to the human psyche. How does injustice and unrighteous often win over justice and righteousness? We hear the words of Psalm 37 and verse 1, don't be annoyed, don't be disturbed, don't be disappointed by evildoers and doings. They will soon be cut off, disappeared like grass without rain. But the problem is in the word soon. Soon seems to never come and we wrestle with how long is soon going to arrive. You can read through Psalm 37 and yet hear how God is responding even to those of us who wrestle with this issue of soon. There's a constant reminding of us from God that soon may not fit your timetable, but in the meantime, you have to endure to live by faith and not by sight. 
Although God says that evil will not endure, it will not survive with longevity, yet he tells us in the 37th Psalm repeatedly just to anoint a few verses, trust in the Lord and do good. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord and trust in him. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Refrain from anger and turn from your wrath and do not fret for it leads only to doing more evil. And then in verse 10 he says, in a little while the wicked will be no more. But yet we're still wrestling with what's a little while, Lord, that only replaces soon. And so we hear what is said in the text in regard to God telling the listener that you have assurance as the believer, but Habakkuk further identifies with us that that just does not satisfy what I'm struggling with. When Habakkuk presents his indictments, as we talked on last Sunday, he talks about God and levels several criticisms against God. In chapter one, he says, God, you are insensitive. You don't care about what's going on. If you did, you would hear my prayer. He says, God, you are indifferent. You're indifferent because you are obviously letting evil triumph over good he says God you are inactive because at the bottom line you are actually doing nothing you are sitting and watching evil as it moves forward with great progress and yet in chapter 1 verse 5 through 11 God responds back to Habakkuk and says to him you claim that I'm insensitive and that I'm indifferent and that I'm inactive and my indictment against you is you are incorrect. I'm doing something, but what I'm doing, you would not understand, nor could you grasp with rationality why I'm doing what I'm doing. In fact, in verses 12 through 17 of chapter one, God says, here's what I'm doing, just so you would know. I'm going to use the Babylonians, a nation, who specialize in dehumanization, who knows how to exercise the art of war, who knows how to steal and to rob and to exploit. I'm going to use them to bring Israel into captivity. They're going to discipline Israel because Israel violated my number one rule when I gave the law to Moses on the tablets. Thou shall have no other gods before me. And Israel has traded me for gods that have no life. And so as a result, I'm going to use Babylon to discipline Israel, but I'm later going to use the Medo-Persians to destroy the Babylonians. And if you'd read Daniel chapter five, you can see how the Medo-Persians are moving closer to not only capture, but to annihilate Babylon. And in chapter five of Daniel, the Medo-Persians are at the outskirts of the gates while the Babylonians are in the inside having a party. 
And in their party, God breaks through and begins to write on the wall, Mina, Mina, Tika, Yefarsin, thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. And eventually the Medo-Persians are allowed to come in and by 539 BC they destroy and take, not only take captive, but destroy Babylon until Babylon in terms of a military might no longer exists. And Habakkuk is hearing all of this and then Habakkuk levels another indictment against God. He says, God, not only are you insensitive, not only are you indifferent, not only are you inactive, but you are also inconsistent. How can you use evil to bring about righteousness? And so in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Habakkuk says, tell you what, because I can't make sense of what you're trying to do in this entire equation, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go up into my tower, and I'm going to just sit a while, and I, I'm going to wait on you to give me an answer to my problem. And if you read that movement by Habakkuk, there's one good thing we can get out of this. Whenever you can't get answers at surface level, go up to another level. Habakkuk goes up into the tower, recognize that I can't get what I need, God, from surface level down here on earth. So let me go higher, go higher up into where God is and just sit before God and say, Lord, I'm tired of asking questions. Now I just want to sit and see what answers you have to give me. And Jesus did the same thing, not in a complaining mode, but Jesus had a space to which he would escape to. That he might just have conversation with God which might suggest to us when you're called to live by faith, there are going to be times when you're going to need a special place where you can just call yourself away to God and just sit there and say, Lord, I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. I need to hear a word from you. Talk to me, God, while I'm in this state of contemplating where you are. Habakkuk does that. And chapter 2 says in verse 1 that he goes up there and he says, I'm going to look and see what God is going to have to say to me. He, he understands that even if he walks in the state of wandering and waiting, as we talked on last Sunday, he has to replace that with worship. And when you go up higher, the one thing you can do is celebrate by way of worship in the presence of God, realizing that I can unload my burdens unto God in that state of worship, waiting until God brings an answer back to me. And that's what God calls Habakkuk to do. Get rid of your wandering and your worrying and replace it with watch and wait. Sit back, Habakkuk. And watch what you are about to see. In fact, in this revelation, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit back and to write this down. I want you to write it down because I want future generations to be able to look and see what to do when you don't know what to do. I want them to see that they were not the only ones who wrestled with what they thought would be my inactivity, that my insensitivity to their condition seems to be prevailing, and that they might suggest 
uh, that I'm indifferent and that I give those who are practitioners of unrighteousness some edge over those who are righteous. I want you to write this down. And he says, make it plain. Don't, don't use words that they can't comprehend, but, but utilize language that everyone can grasp so that when they see it, they will pick it up and run with it to tell everyone about what they've seen in the vision. He says this in verse 3. Understand this. This is a revelation but a warning to those of us who are in the contemporary church, we've misunderstood this verse. We think this verse means that you write down the vision pastor for your church. That you write down going forward what you're going to do in terms of how you're going to grow and succeed. This translation of this word vision slash revelation has been difficult for scholars because the Hebrew word does not suggest a vision because this is not a vision. English translations got it wrong. This is a prophecy. When it's a prophecy, it doesn't depend on man. It depends totally on God. And when you begin to watch what God says to Habakkuk from, chap from verse 6 all the way down to the closing of this chapter, it has nothing to do with a vision in terms of how you're going to grow. It has everything to do with a prophecy and how God is going to judge the unrighteous. We take a text out of context and make it a pretext because it helps us say what we want to say. And this has nothing to do with a vision in terms of what we're going to do in the future, but everything to do with what God is going to do in terms of dealing with unrighteousness. That's the total summation of the chapter. That's the issue for Habakkuk. It's not what we're going to do to grow in the future. It's what are you doing now in reference to evil that's running rapid. And God gives Habakkuk a prophecy. And he says to him in verse 3 that now it's a prophecy. And the reason why it has nothing to do with your impartation is because you have to wait for its appointed time. You can't just write this on your wall and think that it's just going to come to pass when you want to, five years, seven years, ten years. No, it's my appointed time, and what I need for you to do is wait and watch. And that's our challenge. Because if I have to live by faith, as the text suggests, there's a couple of things I have to come to recognize in living by faith. Number one, I have to face the reality that I may experience unanswered prayers. And here's what I mean by that. I'm praying for one thing and looking for one answer, and I may not get an answer back in reference to that at all in this lifetime. I know we've heard the idea that God answers you, either says yes, no, or not, or not right now. Hey, sometimes I don't hear anything. And maybe it's because God has decided not to give me an answer to his issue. I can take it as no. I can take it as not now. 
because if it was yes, it would come out the way I would look for it to come to pass. But I have to realize some of my prayers in this life are not going to be answered. Not only am I not going to have, am I going to have unanswered prayers, but I'm also going to experience unresolved problems. Not all of my problems are going to be fixed. Some stuff I'm just going to have to learn to live with by faith. Some people I'm going to have to live with by faith. Some issues by faith. That's what living by faith means, not by sight, but I'm going to have to walk with a conviction that I may not understand it, but I got to trust that God is working something for my good. Then I have to also live with unfulfilled predictions. By that I mean my own unfulfilled expectations of the future. I have to understand some of my dreams are not going to come to pass. I know we tell everybody, you can do anything in God and all things are possible, but what happens when it doesn't come to pass? How do we wrestle with that? How do we continue moving with God? And Habakkuk is forced to recognize not only would there be unanswered prayers and unresolved problems and unfulfilled predictions, but he says, Habakkuk, I want you to wait and watch because this thing has an appointed time and it speaks of the end. That's how I know it's a prophecy. It speaks of the end. What's going to come to pass? It doesn't depend on you nor your contribution. In fact, Habakkuk, you don't even have to cooperate with me at all. It's not going to change my direction. Instead, if you watch and you wait, it's a prophecy, says verse 3, because it will not prove false. He says, though it lingers, hang out, wait. I know you're asking a lot of questions. I know you're wondering when I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Wait. Wait and watch. Because in waiting and watching, you're forced then to walk by faith. And even what you see, wait and watch to see how I respond. Because in trusting me, I may never tell you what the next step is. You just have to take it by faith. Then God unloads to Habakkuk says to him in verse 5 or verse 4, the edge of verse 4, he begins to unload unto him what this prophecy entails. In verse 4 he says, look at what you are seeing is the behavior of the unrighteous, of the ungodly, who are puffed up. That's a critical word, puffed up. Puffed up, in the Hebrew carries the connotation as a swelling of a tumor. It's growing. It doesn't get easier, Habakkuk. It doesn't get smaller. It only grows. And what you are going to witness with your eyes is the growth of this tumor of evil. And yet, I'm going to cut it out inch by inch, and you're going to see how I'm going to do it. And that's why he closes in that fourth verse 
and says, the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. Because I don't know what God's doing. I don't know when God's going to do what God's going to do. All I know is I have to hold to God's, what I believe to be unchanging hand and build my hopes on what God says. So let me quickly give you what God tells Habakkuk, then we're done. He tells him five things will happen to the Babylonians. He says, your Bible might say, he starts out by saying, woe. And woe is a word that carries with it the meaning that this is a warning and something devastating is going to come afterwards. Jesus used it in Matthew 23 to remind the Pharisees of their wicked ways. John uses it in Revelation in describing what he later come to say as the city of Babylon in its unrighteous ways. And God tells Habakkuk in this text, he says, Habakkuk, look at them because in verse 5, wine betrays them. And that's because the Babylonians were well known, had a reputation for being great alcohol consumers. They made it, but they drunk it, and they drunk it at every occasion. I mean, you got to understand, there was no availability of Diet Coke or regular Coke or orange soda or juice. None of that, just wine and water, and they were consuming it to the point where the text says he's arrogant and never at rest, which means the wine betrays them by way of intoxication, controlling their minds, controlling their emotions, and pushing them to behaviors that is beyond recognition. And God says, beginning to the text, they're greedy. And look at what verse 5 says. They're greedy as grave and like death that is never satisfied. A people who are greedy, no matter how much they get, they want more and more and more and more to the point where they allow themselves to become so intoxicated by their greed, says verse five through eight, that that greed consumes them where they are willing to pay any price to satisfy their desires. And God says to Habakkuk, don't get to the point where you keep watching what they're doing because eventually you'll decide, maybe it's okay if I do it. If I become to a place where they, they slip and slide and break the law here and there and do a little something, something here, maybe it's all right if I do it. Because if God is watching them and letting them get away with it, then surely I can get away with it. And God is warning Habakkuk, don't do it. Keep your eyes unto the hills from whence come your help. Look what he says. He says to him in verse 5, uh, they gather to themselves all nations and they take the people captive. They take all the people. They are in the business. They are experts. They are strategically 
experts in rounding up nations, taking control of them, taking what possessions they have because they are greedy. And greed, says the proverb writer, can get you into a lot of trouble. Greed can move your life off of the center perspective in terms of fellowshipping and worshiping and following the direction of God and move you to the right or the left. And before you know, you have dug yourself a deep hole and you are in a condition to which no one can get you out. Greed speaks to our cycle of violence and plundering what others have that we might later enjoy what we call to be abundance. And greed has reference to land, has reference to labor, has reference to resources, has reference to environmental violations. It's about merely destroying that we might have and that someone else does not have. It's like Flint, Michigan. Greed is saying, knowing that if we switch water systems, that the one that we switch to, it may have an abundance, but the system to which it utilized is corroded and thus becomes the water contaminated and we ain't fixing it. Because the infrastructure, quote unquote, is too expensive. That's greed. And let those who are the recipients of this suffer. Now you might add, okay, that's just an outcome of experience. No, because who makes out? Whoever sells bottled water. That's greed. And God says to her back, whoa, watch it. I'm going to handle it. I'm going to handle it. I'm going to handle it. He says in verse 6, will not all of them taunt him and ridicule and score saying, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy. Greed. That's the reason why they never repaired Haiti. Greed. Then there's a second row, and this second row, row connects to the first. It's extortion. It's exploiting the vulnerable. It's taking away from those who can't fight back, who doesn't have the power, doesn't have the economics, doesn't have the political clout. They can't fight back, fight back, so we make policy, we enact policy, we utilize policy to extract from those who already have little and have them end up with nothing. So we do that by gingification. We move into communities and we allow them to remain low by way of value, but as we change the demographics, we then allow the value to increase and excel while we move in our businesses and we do the one thing that you can't reproduce, we take that, that's land. And it doesn't mean anything to you if you don't own a piece of land or you don't own a house, it doesn't mean anything to you because you don't understand the value of what the natural resource of land is. 
That's the reason why if your mama or daddy left you some land, I don't care if it's way back in the deep woods of Alabama where it takes you a track to get back there, you hold on to that land. Don't you sell that land until you're ready to do so because it has value. And there are those who know the value because they're in the position to project what it's going to be like 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the road. And they know now if they move in and offer you a few dollars, you'll sell it. Every day I come up Zion Drive, I recognize the impartation and the implementation of that principle. We are sitting on a spot. We are in a community where all faces look like us at one time. And then when their foreparents passed away and left it to them, don't you think somebody knew that this would be a spot where let's say 30 years ago a house here may cost 100 grand. Here we are now in 2019, just creep around the corner one million dollars but we had to get the land and now they've purchased the land extortion it looks legal it's on paper the lawyers checked it out but as any person with common sense would know don't forget to read the fine print but more importantly Understand the value of what you have in your possession. Greed. Extortion, says the text. Look at me, follow me. We almost done, follow me. How long must this go on? Even God says that. How, how can God say that when God is already all-knowing? He's trying to help Habakkuk rationalizing his mind you're trying to figure out how long should this go look 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 at verse 7 will not your debtors suddenly arise will they not wake up and make you tremble then you will become their victim in other words God says it's coming a time when those that have been extorted will finally fight back and they will stand up and trust me trust me understand history one objective of oppression is fear. If I can impart fear in you, then you'll never rise up. But once you get past fear, that's what Franz Fanon said, the great Algerian theologian says, you got to get past fear and recognize I must die for something and that something has to be what's right and what's true. And when your enemy recognizes that you rise up to fear, then they become fearful because they never thought you would actually fight back. You should read the insurrections of American history where you learn about Nat Turner and Gabriel Prozor and Denmark Vesey. One reason why the folk never believed because they never thought that slaves would actually rise up. But they always had the fear that if you ever let them congregate together, they will amass the strength to resist fear. And Nat Turner did that. And the sad thing was, all of them, Nat Turner, Gabriel Proza, Denmark Vizzi, they all would find out because there was a snitch in their own group. What a tragedy. That's why they label us under the crab mentality. Put them in a basket. Don't put a top on it. Don't need a top. 
Because as soon as one starts to amass the height of success and get out, there's another that will pull them back down and we don't have to do anything. Why do you think there's no rush to create gun laws that will stop the ability to be able to purchase assault rifles? Why? They'll kill themselves. That helps us. Well, we don't have to worry about locking them up. It's better for them to be dead than locked up. Why do you think the NRA is who they are? Why do you think politicians stand? That's when I talk about, and I know you don't like it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. That's when I talk about systemic racism, and you don't even see it. That's when it's described, masked by my right to bear arms. Sure, I have a right to bear arms. But do I sell an assault rifle, give them access by a 15-year-old to go into a school and mass murder? And unfortunately, murdering in school is not anything new. We've had some of our own kids to murder others, get into gang fights in school, and you don't ever hear about it on the two until a certain group of people have mass murder, then it's a major national issue. That's extortion. That's what God is saying. But they're going to rise up, says God, in due time. And the people are going to say, you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Can you imagine how God says, I'm going to judge how they have destroyed people, groups, and land. There's a great piece of American history that we never like to discuss, and that's Vietnam. America, in all of its puffing up of itself, don't like to discuss Vietnam because they know we made a major, major error in being involved in Vietnam. And I'm like, Muhammad Ali, why would I go over and kill a Viet Cong when they've done nothing to me? There it is in the text. You're going to rise. Here's another woe. Look at verse 9. Woe to him who builds his realm or his reign by unjust gain to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of the ruin. It's not only stealing from others, but being a part of a composition that purposely makes sure that they redistrict red lines so those who have the potential will never be able to meet it. God says, I'm going I'm to handle that. It's not only greed I'm going to handle, exploitation I'm going to handle, but this happens to those who seem to engage in banking business error. So in 08, 012, we have these banks that go belly up. And you, you never thought it was interesting that the government dumped all kinds of money for rescuing for the banks and didn't do anything for the citizens. We had to rescue the banking industry, says the evil, because that's the backbone of our system. 
We can't keep doing what we're doing. The rich can't, being, can't, can't keep being rich where they are unless we got some banks to back us. There it is. And that's what they did. Once again, stole. Once again, extort. Once again, misaligned. Once again, marginalized. But then there's another woe right here in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Woe to him who utilizes cheap labor, who uses immigrants, who complains in the public eye of immigration and yet in the background who's building your towers are immigrant hands. And you pay them a cheap wage. That's the reason why you impart them here. Because knowing you need to pay the right wage. But you don't have to because they're undocumented workers. And on top of that, those of us who are Americans, that's what they say. You don't want that job anyway. You want the desk job. You want the supervision job. So I've become an advocate, a champion. This might surprise you of not making college for young people your number one priority. You might want to think about an actual career in terms of bricklaying, in terms of electrician, in terms of plumbing. They're just as lucrative. You have to get technical training, but at the end of the day, you're not $100,000 in debt. But you've developed a skill, a craft, and you can become almost, may not initially, but at least within a couple of years, your own entrepreneur. I saw a sign the other day, $26 an hour for bricklayers. I'm like, good grief. That's like $200 a day if my math is right. Is that right? $25, $25 times eight is what? Is that $200? Ms. Jones, is that $200? There you go. That's $1,000 a week. That don't include Saturdays and Sundays. See, it don't mean anything to us because we got college degrees and we're looking for an uh, in-house job. But you don't get no house unless somebody build it. You can't have a building unless somebody put the bricks down and run the electricity and the plumbing. And we've pushed, we've pushed our folk away from skilled labor jobs, which they can do very well. Some people have a natural propensity for just doing that kind of thing. A creative mind with a brick layer, masonry. But we push them away. You got to get a college degree. When you know you're already, even if you graduate, your chance of getting a job is reduced tremendously because the pool, primarily probably where you got your degree in, is so large and you're not the cream of the crop. Preach, Pastor Murphy. I am doing the best I can. So here we go. How has the Almighty determined that the people's labor is only few for the five? Verse 13, the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. I'm going to say this point and move on. What you should do is take a moment and go back in history and look up whose hands built the capital on the Capitol Hill. You, you, you should go back and look up whose hands built the White House. That's why I say you should know your history. 
You need to know who built Capitol Hill. Look like you and I resting in their graves now. Who built the White House? Look like you and I. Don't tell me we don't have the skill to be millionaires. We got to stop falling under somebody else's rubric to be what we think we need to be. God, I might I wish I had time to talk about that. All right, here we go. Here's my last one. Look at verse 15. Woe to those who give drinks to his neighbor, pouring it out from the wineskin till they are drunk so that they can gaze at their naked bodies. God says, in other words, I know that the Babylonians, they purposely specialize and enjoy the sensuality of orgies. And one, re one way to get an orgy going is to get everybody intoxicated. And I know y'all smart enough to know what the origin is, so I don't even have to spend time giving you the details. Y'all college graduates, you know exactly what that is. And here's the Babylonians believe that one way to seal an exploitive business deal is to get you drunk. And when I get you drunk, modern translation, when I get you drunk, you'll sign any contract I put before you. I can have any deal come to pass because you won't even be aware of what you are doing because you trust me. And because I gave you the drink, because you normally would not take a drink from someone you don't know, you trust that my giving of you is in your best interest only for entertainment purposes only. And as a result, I get you in a space of nakedness. Have you noticed? One way to ruin your career now as a professional is to have pictures of your nakedness exposed via Instagram or via Facebook or whatever it is that they use these days. Now, we've been naked folk all along for a long time. We've been unrobing. Check this out. If we were Romans, they had what's called Roman baths, city baths, where you all go take baths in the same place. Y'all can't imagine that, can you? Right, right there in the city. Right there in the city. We all go there and take baths. Hang out with one another. Now, you're going to tell me that we're all going to keep jumping in this pool every day and ain't nothing going on behind the scenes or even in the pool, which I think is a reason how we feed into this uh, pedophile kind of mentality. Because you put children in vulnerable spaces. And by doing so, someone who has a proclivity, a desire, a urge, who I think is mentally sick, if you're an adult and you have a desire for a child, you need deep help. Actually, you need, well, I can't tell you that. You're probably fine if I tell you that. We, we need to go old school on you. Just the brothers. Just the brothers need to take you out behind the woods and I'll just let your imagination work on the rest. That's what we need, not laws. Because I'm convinced that there's an interesting thing that physical force does that written force doesn't do. You know I'm right. One of the reasons why many of us ain't never been in jail is because the physical force that mama and daddy put on us to remind us 
Act up if you want to, but this, there's more where this came from. And you couldn't pay us to break the law. At least not somebody who would see us break the law. You got children now. You, you, can't, you can't do nothing to me. I'm done. My point is done. Watch this. Uh, when we were going to school, it was hard. I mean hard uh, for us to break the rules in class because A, uh, the teacher probably knew our parents. And on top of that, parents actually did come to, uh, what do they call it, PTA or parents night out or whatever that is. We actually did go back to that. But also, they had the right to tear your behind up right there in class. Now, they can act out. They ain't worried about you. You can't touch me. You can call the principal, call the counselor. They can come down here and get me out of class. I'm going to go back to their office, and we're going to talk a while. And then later on, they're going to send me back. That's the reason why we have what I call perpetual bullying. Because these kids know, you ain't going to do nothing to me. What you going to do to me? And the red tape that you created, man, it'll be months. By that time, it's time for me to go to my next grade. But when I was coming up, you may not even live sitting next grade if you didn't act the way you need to act. I'm trying to make the point. There's something about physical force. You brought into that Dr. Spark mentality. Sit down and talk to your children. Rationalize. How are you going to rationalize with a third grader? Now listen, Johnny. You don't do that, okay? That's not the thing that we do. It's not nice to do that. Johnny, this is my last time telling you, if I got to go back to that school again, I'm going to tell yo, you know what up. You hear me? Johnny leaves that place crying, man, and I bet you any amount of money Johnny ain't going back to school to act like he don't have any sense. Mama never has to worry about that again because physical force in its intimidation said something. And here, God says to Habakkuk, you don't understand it now, but give me time and I'm going to straighten it all out. There's a final woe. The final woe is in verse 19. Uh, woe to him who, who looks at wood and says, come to life, a lifeless stone. And he says, this is my indictment to Israel, Habakkuk. They replace me with idols that can't even talk. Can't even move because it has no life. Habakkuk, I'm going to straighten that out. And God is saying to you and I, you see all of this, and if you think I'm not doing anything, I am, but I need for you to walk and live by faith. It's hard. It's hard because you want me to do what you want me to do, but remember, I know the plans that I have for you, not to harm you, but to prosper you, to expand you. And I know that you're in a weeping state now. It's night, it's darkness. But if you keep living by faith, joy will come in the morning. And you know what I've learned? If you spend more time just working on you, fixing you, don't worry about anybody else, by the time you realize that you're finally getting yourself together, 
then somebody else is working on themselves, problem seems to be less of an agitation and more of an education. I'm learning something from all of this drama that I'm witnessing in this world. That's what God is trying to tell us this morning. Live by faith, and I guarantee you, when I bring this prophecy to pass, you will know that God was at work. Now, here's, here's something you might not want to hear. I might not do it in your lifetime. You may die seeing the same thing you've always seen. But that's not where your hope lies. Your hope is built on Jesus' blood and righteousness. You have an eternal heaven that it may not get right here, but I'm going to a space where there's no more crying, no more suffering, and no more heartache, and no more disappointment. I'm finally, at some point in time, I'm going to transition to a place where the wicked ceases from troubling. And my soul, my weary soul, will finally find rest. Rest beyond the river. And that's what God tells Habakkuk, live by faith. The just shall live by faith. That's what God tells us this morning. The just will live by faith. The justified, those who are working on just us, will live by faith. We are living witnesses enough to know that justice does not always come the next day. We have enough injustice to remind us that justice takes a while, sometimes a lifetime, to come to pass. But we never stop fighting. We never stop persevering. We never stop pushing. And we must never become silent. Silence suggested that we've conceded to the perils of the oppressor. And you are indeed doomed if that happens. Lord, thank you for the word of Habakkuk chapter 2.